Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Today is Monday, April 13th, 2020. On this day in 1946, the Phantom Killer committed his second double murder in Texarkana, Texas. The killing sent the town into a panic. Everyone was terrified they had a serial killer on their hands. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Due to the graphic nature of today's crime, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. Today we're covering the second double murder in the Phantom Killer's spree, an unsolved series of killings in Texas. Let's go back to the night of April 13, 1946, a little before midnight. Fifteen-year-old Betty Jo Booker was tearing up the stage with her alto saxophone. She was playing her standing gig with the Rhythm Airs, the local band that performed weekly at the Texarkana VFW Club. After the band finished up, Betty Jo packed up her sax in its black imitation leather case and looked out over the dance floor for her ride home. There he was, a friend since kindergarten and, as of recently, her boyfriend. She waved. 17-year-old Paul Martin quickly made his way over to offer his help with the instrument case. Then the couple made their way to Paul's car, loaded in the sacks, and pulled out into the intersection of West 4th and Oak Street. Like any other Saturday night. Or so they thought. But they were being followed. The phantom killer had murdered a young couple in their car almost three weeks previously. Now he was on the hunt for his next victims. The town of Texarkana was on alert. Everyone had been shocked by the earlier double murder. People were leaving their lights on overnight, and they were talking, half concrete facts, half gossip. The only eyewitness information about the phantom killer came from an attack at the end of February, in which both victims escaped. The killer had worn a white mask with two eye holes. He seemed drawn to young couples in parked cars. Both previous attacks had happened late on weekend nights along well-known lovers' lanes. But tonight, Betty Jo was headed to a girlfriend's slumber party. She didn't have all night to sit in Paul's parked Ford Club Coupe. Still, the teens made a slight detour along Spring Lake Park and rolled to a stop. They'd only stay a few minutes. Paul even left the keys in the ignition. Those keys would still be there when the police arrived the next day. At 6.30 a.m., Paul Martin's body was discovered crumpled along North Park Road, about a mile and a half from the car. 
He'd been shot four times. One bullet tore through his nose and another through his right hand. A third bullet had blasted through the left side of his chest. The final round was fired through the back of his neck. The call immediately went out to the sheriff and Texas Rangers. They quickly found Paul's car, keys and all. But there was no sign of Betty Joe. A search party was formed. They combed the land around the car from top to bottom. Hours passed, and still no sign of the missing 15-year-old. Meanwhile, the coroner examined Paul's body. He'd been shot with a 32 caliber pistol from a distance. He was found laying on his left side as though he'd fallen and not gotten up. His clothing and skin suggested that there had been a struggle before he died. The people of Texarkana started to panic, but their terror really took off when the news about Betty Jo finally broke. Her body was found two miles from Paul's and over a mile from the car. Betty Jo was laying behind a tree, still wearing her coat. Her hand was in her pocket. Her saxophone was nowhere to be seen. She'd been shot once in the chest and once in the face. Another young couple had been murdered. Just like in that other case, the townspeople knew these couldn't be isolated incidents. They had a serial killer on the loose. Newspapers splashed the story across the front page of special editions. People started carrying weapons and stockpiling ammunition and flashlights to protect their homes. As the fear spread, the Texarkana Sheriff and Texas Rangers set out to capture the phantom killer before he struck again. Coming up, the race to capture the phantom killer. Now back to the story. Late in the night on April 13, 1946, 17-year-old Paul Martins and 15-year-old Betty Jo Booker were murdered in Texarkana, Texas. This was the second double murder in a spate of killings by the Phantom Killer, a masked man who targeted young lovers. It set off a wave of panic in the surrounding area. Townspeople began carrying weapons, leaving lights on overnight and reporting any suspicious movements outside their homes. A curfew was set for the town and local businesses closed before nightfall. The police and sheriff deputies were on high alert and turned to the Texas Rangers to aid in their investigation. The Rangers found that Betty Jo and Paul had been shot by the same 32 caliber Colt used in the first double murder. They also found evidence of struggle on both Betty Jo and Paul's bodies and surmised that the teens had fled the car and forced the killer to chase them. The investigation initially focused on Betty Jo's missing saxophone. Had the killer taken the instrument? If so, why? Officers arrested a man trying to sell a saxophone locally, but the lead went cold when the missing instrument was discovered near the site where Betty Jo's body was found, hidden in the underbrush. Then the killer struck again. Almost a month after Paul and Betty Jo's murder, a third attempted double murder occurred, although one of the victims survived. The town was now in the throes of hysteria. 
newspapers only made the situation worse with rampant speculation based on the very few facts the rangers had publicly acknowledged. Some headlines even labeled the killer a sex maniac without any substantial evidence. The victims had all been found fully clothed with no signs of sexual assault. Meanwhile, the police and Texas Rangers arrested nearly 400 people in connection with the murders, but no solid leads materialized. Until July, when a man named Yule Swinney was arrested for car theft in Arkansas. Swinney's wife, Peggy, was also implicated in the crime. But when Peggy was arrested, she didn't just talk about the car. She confessed that her husband was the phantom killer, providing details of the crimes that nobody outside the investigation knew. Yule Swinney was held and questioned for the murders, but he refused to talk. Once Peggy realized he was staying quiet, she also recanted her confession and the police couldn't find any more than circumstantial evidence to link Swinney to the three double murders. The closest thing they had to a confession was Swinney's statement when he was arrested for car theft. As the cuffs were going on, Swinney said, you got me for more than stealing cars. But Swinney never mentioned these other crimes again. With no concrete evidence for murder, Swinney could only be tried for the auto thefts. He was convicted and imprisoned, but was released in 1973 and eventually died in a Dallas nursing home. But there is a very compelling fact that supports his involvement. The Phantom Killer murders stopped as soon as he was arrested. Other suspects were identified, including an 18-year-old university student who confessed to the murders in a suicide note. However, no evidence ever linked him or anyone else to the killings. The lack of a clear conclusion to the case left Texarkana on high alert. Even though the murders had stopped by the summer of 1946, nobody knew if the killer would strike again after a hiatus. A teen couple were in a parked car late one night and a sheriff's deputy approached their car. When he knocked on the window and asked why they weren't afraid to be out, the young girl looked at the officer and said, you're the one who ought to be scared, mister. It's a good thing you told me who you are. I was ready for the killer. Then she showed the officer the 25 caliber revolver she had been pointing at him the whole time. Eventually, the fear subsided, and the killing spree became a sensational local legend. A B-movie was made a decade later, and a 2014 book reopened the case files for a deep investigation into Yule Swinney. The book concluded that Swinney was indeed the phantom killer. But any physical evidence that might have confirmed the conclusion had long since deteriorated or disappeared. The Phantom Killer was never identified. Today, the case remains officially unsolved.
Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. For more information on these Texarkana crimes, check out the Phantom Killer episodes of ParCast's Unsolved Murders. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle. I'm Vanessa Richardson.